Patriot missile system is an escalation. This is our most high-tech system. It's an air defense system that we have guys trained for three years how to operate. These were the words of Fox News commentator Jesse Waters, as is documented on the Fox News YouTube page video. The Five reacts to President Biden, Zelensky, White House presser. Waters' remarks about the Patriot missile system were quite accurate, even if the context for his statements was rather dubious. The Patriot missile system is a rather high-tech system at the United States' disposal, and providing it to other countries would certainly represent an increase in aid and support. Waters, however, went on to say that, quote, You don't just hand this thing over and say, Ukraine, go for it. You're sending advisors over to Ukraine on the ground to operate the system for them. So, when the missiles are coming in, this thing better be 100% because if we have guys on the ground getting shot down by Putin's missiles, that's going to be a real problem, end quote. Waters' comments were being made in reaction to United States President Joe Biden agreeing to provide Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky with Patriot missiles to defend Ukraine from Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. The reaction that Waters had to the sophistication and complexity of the Patriot missile system certainly is a valid one. However, I would attest that Biden giving the Patriot missile system to Zelensky was the right decision. If you are interested in my explanation for why it is so imperative that Biden defend Ukraine, I would highly recommend checking out my podcast episode titled, Crimea is Ukraine. Similarly, on former White House Chief Strategist Stephen K. Bannon's War Room podcast episode titled, Episode 2392, We Are Sleepwalking Into a Shooting War with Russia, Author and U.S. intelligence analyst Rebecca Koffler stated that, quote, The Russians view all of this help as escalatory, specifically the Patriot missile defense system, which is one of the most sophisticated missile defense systems on the market that rivals the Russian S-400s. And so these are very expensive systems. It costs $4 million per intercept, and there are 16 of them on one launch. And the launch will cost $10 million. So, but the Russians are viewing that system as strategic, and because it blunts their nuclear deterrent on which Russia relies for its security. End quote. I concur that Biden delivering Zelensky with the Patriot missile defense system is a major step forward in Biden's support for Ukraine. However, it is arguably a justifiable step forward. As I articulated in my podcast episode, Keeper of the Tsars, Putin's war machine has been responsible for many horrific war crimes. Putin is intent on devastating Ukraine and its civilian population in order to conquer the country for himself. Providing Ukrainian defense forces with Patriot missile systems is an effective and appropriate strategy for Biden to help support Ukraine. The logical rationale for why Biden would grant Zelensky with the Patriot missile system was not perceived by Sebastian Gorka, a guest that Bannon had on his War Room podcast episode, titled Episode 2394, The Secrecy of the CIA, who served with Bannon in United States President Donald Trump's administration as a deputy assistant to the president. Gorka proclaimed to Bannon, while recounting Biden's decision, quote, Patriot missile batteries? Are you nuts? They don't know how to use those. End quote. While Waters was swift to criticize Biden for providing Zelensky with the Patriot missile system, as far as I can tell, Waters did not have the same public perturbed reaction to Biden's arms deal of Patriot missiles to two other countries, also, interestingly enough, in 2022. The same goes for Koffler. 
when discussing how sophisticated and expensive the Patriot missile system was, Waters, Koffler, and Gorka all did not mention the fact that Biden also provided Patriot missiles to other countries that very same year that he gave some to Ukraine. Perhaps that is because condemning Biden for these other sales would also indicate a condemnation of Trump, who Gorka himself worked for, and other U.S. presidents that took the same actions as Biden. However, if there's any appropriate criticism to be levied against Biden's Patriot missile arms sales in 2022, it is not in relation to Ukraine, but rather two other countries. These two countries that also received Patriot missiles from Biden's administration were Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. In August of 2022, U.S. President Biden approved two major arms deals to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, more colloquially referred to as the UAE. A strategic rationale offered by the Biden administration was that the weapons are defensive and can be used by Saudi Arabia and the UAE to protect themselves from Iran's attacks. Curtailing Iran's pursuit of power in the region would serve U.S. national interests as well. However, these two major arms deals signaled a reversal for Biden, who, while campaigning, criticized previous presidential administrations for approving arms deals with oppressive nations and announced his intent to end U.S. military support for the Saudi-led military offensive in Yemen due to its egregious war crimes, which have caused a humanitarian crisis to ensue. In this podcast, I will present the policy argument that the U.S. should curtail arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE because selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE does not align with U.S. values of democracy and its commitment to human rights, diminishes the credibility of the U.S. on the world stage, decreases U.S. national security, and increases U.S. culpability in war zones where the weapons sold are used. In the future, the U.S. should adopt policy decisions that more heavily weigh the negative implications of international weapons transactions when considering the strategic gains that may be attained from prospective arms deals with oppressive regimes. As is recounted by Dan Albal in the Open Secrets article titled Capitalizing on Conflict, How U.S. Arms Sales Fuel the Humanitarian Crisis in Yemen, the Yemeni civil war incited after interim Yemeni president Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi was forced to leave the capital by the Houthis is a complex combat zone with many national and regional actors. The Houthis are supported by Iran, while a Saudi coalition of states, including the UAE, Egypt, and Bahrain, support Hadi and his loyalists in the Southern Transitional Council. As is noted by Raluca Elena Radusia in the Journal of Defense Resources Management article titled The Politics of Arms Trade, The Forgotten War in Yemen, war-torn Yemen has become a breeding ground for terror organizations, such as Al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula, more colloquially referred to as AQAP. In addition, the Yemeni civil war has led to great suffering for the Yemeni people. According to UNICEF, even before the Civil War, Yemen faced widespread poverty, rampant food insecurity, and a lack of health services, with almost 22 million Yemenis, mostly children, in desperate need of UN humanitarian aid. This humanitarian crisis has been exacerbated by Saudi Arabia's military strategy to implement a blockade, restricting the flow of food, fuel, and medicine into Yemen. 
According to the American Journal of International Law article titled, Biden Administration Launches Reset in Relations with Saudi Arabia, Withdraws Support for Saudi-Led War in Yemen, during his presidential campaign, Biden expressed disdain for then-U.S. President Donald Trump's close alliance with Saudi Arabia and vowed to treat the leadership of Saudi Arabia like, quote, the pariahs that they are, end quote. However, despite this pledge, Biden has taken foreign policy action that has supported Saudi Arabia's efforts in the Yemeni civil war by selling weapons to both Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The U.S. has deep military involvement in Yemen. As is explained in the American Journal of International Law article titled Congress Signals Concern Over U.S. Role in Aiding Saudi Arabia's Activities in Yemen, with the consent of Hadi, the U.S. has conducted counterterrorism operations in Yemen primarily aimed at AQAP and later the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, otherwise known as ISIL, since 2011. The U.S. has supported the Saudi-led coalition dedicated to protecting Hadi's reign in Yemen. As is illustrated in the American Journal of International Law article titled Congress and the Trump Administration Spar Over U.S. Arms Sales to the Saudi-Led Coalition in Yemen, Specifically, the U.S. has provided the coalition with intelligence sharing, logistical support, and arms. U.S. involvement in Yemen is motivated by a complex matrix of interests, ranging from engaging in operations in Yemen to achieve counterterrorism objectives in the region, to backing the Saudi-led coalition to strengthen the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and use that relationship to achieve strategic goals, despite Saudi Arabia's humanitarian crimes and violations. The U.S. is widely perceived as a hegemon within the international community, and it would be assumed that, as a result, the norms of the hegemonic stability theory would be applicable to the relationship that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, and Yemen. Hegemonic stability theory, as defined by Paul Denary in the International Politics, Power, and Purpose in Global Affairs textbook, posits that a degree of stability will be achieved globally when one power dominates all others and can enforce its will onto other states. However, when hegemonic stability theory is applied to the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, discrepancies in the anticipated norms arise. Saudi Arabia has not become subservient to the demands of the U.S. On the contrary, Saudi Arabia has actively weaponized its abundant supplies of oil against the U.S. while still receiving considerable U.S. support. According to Felicia Gray's Domes article titled How Oil Twists the Hegemon's Arm, the case of the United States and Saudi Arabia and their ambivalent partnership, Saudi Arabia's willingness and ability to act independently of the perceived hegemonic power of the U.S. demonstrated in its implementation of policies designed to affect oil prices in the oil crises of 1973, 1979, and 2008 is evidence that Saudi Arabia's ample supply of oil is enough to counterbalance a hegemon and violate the anticipated norms of hegemonic stability theory. The relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia grew closer after the Iranian Revolution, when U.S. President Ronald Reagan sought to use Saudi Arabia as a counterbalance to Iranian and Russian interests in the Middle East. However, after Reagan's administration sold Saudi Arabia 400 Stinger missiles and Congress sabotaged plans by the Reagan administration to sell the kingdom more arms, Saudi Arabia defiantly turned to Britain for tornado fighters. 
This example illustrates how the supposedly less powerful Saudi Arabia disregarded the wishes of the hegemon and yet continued to maintain its fruitful relationship with it, while simultaneously demonstrating to the US that it has the means and will to attract other suppliers. It is risky from a foreign policy standpoint for the US to nurture a relationship in which the power dynamic does not consistently favor its interests. Despite this risk, the US continues to pursue its relationship with Saudi Arabia and its major regional ally, the UAE, through arms deals, an effort which has persisted over the course of multiple presidential administrations. The US has long used arms deals as a strategic foreign policy, framing the policy as humanitarian or economic, depending on the circumstance, to shape domestic and international perception. As is indicated by Randall Fowler in the Quarterly Journal of Speech article titled Art of the Arms Deal, Reagan, AWACS, and the Rhetorical Presidency, U.S. President John F. Kennedy reframed arms transfers from American defense companies to foreign countries as sales instead of aid. This shift from sales to aid reached its inflection point during the administration of U.S. President Richard Nixon. The Foreign Military Sales Act of 1968 formalized the shift by defunding the military assistance program and giving the foreign military sales program separate legislative authority. Under Nixon's leadership, U.S. foreign arms deals increased substantially, with many of the sales going to Saudi Arabia and Iran. While Nixon's successor, Gerald Ford, largely continued Nixon's arms sales policies, the subsequent presidential administration of Jimmy Carter opposed them, with Carter decrying the sale of Maverick missiles to Saudi Arabia by declaring that Quote, no administration which was sensitive to the climate of the Middle East could let the sale go forward. End quote. Reagan overtly broke with Carter's rhetoric of arms control in his efforts to sell the airborne warning and control system, AWACS, an advanced weapon system, to Saudi Arabia. Reagan became the first president to portray Saudi Arabia as the primary ally of the U.S. in the Persian Gulf, a strategic maneuver designed to strengthen opposition against the perceived expanding power of the Soviet Union. By the time the Yemeni civil war commenced, the U.S. already had a close pre-existing relationship with Saudi Arabia. However, it can also be posited that had the U.S. commanded a stronger hegemonic stance in its relationship with Saudi Arabia, the Yemeni civil war may not have escalated to the humanitarian catastrophe that it has now become. As is articulated by Bruce Reddell in the Brookings article titled, It's Time to Stop U.S. Arms Deals to Saudi Arabia, U.S. President Barack Obama could have feasibly put an end to the Yemeni civil war if he had cut off diplomatic, military, and intelligence support for the Saudi-led coalition. Obama's regional commander, Lloyd Austin, reportedly advised against supporting the Saudi-led coalition and predicted that it would be a failure. Despite this advice, Obama decided to support Saudi Arabia in Yemen. Trump's foreign policy also served the interests of Saudi Arabia. On the first day of Trump's inaugural international trip, as Fowler notes, he announced that he had signed a $110 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia, citing the U.S. strategic interest in countering Iran, ISIS, and other, quote, barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life, end quote. According to Rydell, Trump expressed enthusiastic support for Saudi Arabia's military operations in Yemen, 
and Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, even appeased Saudi Arabia by leading an effective campaign to designate the Houthis as a terrorist organization. The Nixon, Reagan, Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations have each enabled Saudi Arabia's atrocious human rights violations by supplying them with sophisticated weapons. For generations of U.S. leaders to all enable Saudi Arabia and dutifully carry out the kingdom's demands, there must be some strategic or economic benefits that the U.S. has been receiving in return. While it is true that Saudi Arabia has balanced the scales of power in its relationship with the U.S. in its favor, there are some important benefits from this relationship that the U.S. has attained that are important to analyze when considering why Biden and so many of his presidential predecessors would sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. As Fowler highlights, when the Reagan administration implemented the sale of AWACS and other weapons to Saudi Arabia, it was in pursuit of U.S. interests in securing the flow of oil, instituting a check against Soviet expansionist influences, improving relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, developing U.S. force projection capability, and increasing U.S. influence. While some of the details of the U.S. interests pertaining to its relationship with Saudi Arabia have changed since Reagan's presidency, the general notion of Saudi Arabia being an indispensable ally of the U.S. within the Middle East, despite the brutality of its regime, has remained rather consistent within U.S. foreign policy circles. As is articulated by Callie Robinson in the Council on Foreign Relations article titled Yemen's Tragedy, War, Stalemate, and Suffering, currently, U.S. strategic interests in continuing its allyship with Saudi Arabia include the security of Saudi borders, free passage in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, a vital artery for global transport of oil, and the existence of a Yemeni government that will cooperate with U.S. counterterrorism operations. Supporting the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen allows the U.S. to counteract AQAP, which operates successfully in Yemen due to its chaotic civil war. According to James Christensen, in the Journal of Applied Philosophy article titled Selling Arms and Expressing Harm, in regions where prominent terrorist groups are active, such as AQAP in Yemen, states like the U.S. with an interest in conducting counterterrorism operations in the interest of national security may support any government, regardless of that government's potential authoritarian impulses, that is willing to aid in these counterterrorism efforts. Despite the American foreign policy establishment's apparent belief that supporting and arming regimes such as Saudi Arabia will ultimately benefit the security of American citizens by reducing the threat posed by terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda, other branches of the U.S. government, namely Congress, have called into question the ethics of the U.S. support for Saudi Arabia in its campaign to starve Yemen into submission. As is explained in the American Journal of International Law article titled Congress Signals Concern Over U.S. Role in Aiding Saudi Arabia's Activities in Yemen, congressional concern over the U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition has largely centered on the thousands of civilian casualties incurred, a spreading cholera epidemic, and Yemen being on the brink of famine. Congressional criticism was also levied towards the executive branch after the brutal death of Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist and outspoken critic of the Saudi government. As Radusia details, in March of 2018, three senators introduced a resolution that would condition U.S. support for the Saudi government and its involvement in the Yemeni civil war on congressional approval. This resolution, however, failed to be adopted. According to the Congress and the Trump administration spar over U.S. arms sales to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen article, 
Following the death of Khashoggi, Congress attempted again to curtail U.S. involvement in the Yemeni Civil War by passing a joint resolution that directed Trump to remove U.S. armed forces from Yemen, except for those engaged in efforts to combat al-Qaeda and its allies. Trump, however, opted to veto this resolution, as well as three subsequent bipartisan congressional resolutions intended to stop Trump's arms sales to Saudi Arabia. When it comes to arms sales to Saudi Arabia, congressional concern has had little power to dissuade the U.S. from continuing this problematic foreign policy. These failed congressional efforts to end support for Saudi Arabia highlight the fact that, while ending support for Saudi Arabia can be influenced by other branches of government, it ultimately will likely have to be a decision from the executive branch. Specifics as to U.S. arms deals show that not only does the U.S. government actively sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, but it does so disproportionately, as is illustrated in Trevor A. Thrall, Jordan Cohen, and Carolyn Dormany's Strategic Studies Quarterly article titled Power, Profit, or Prudence, U.S. Arms Sales Since 9-11. Between 2002 and 2019, the U.S. earned more in arms deals with Saudi Arabia than with any other country, followed by Egypt a member of the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. Matthew Lee's PBS article titled, U.S. Approves Massive Arms Sale to Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates to Counter Iran, indicates how Biden's recent arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE include the sale of Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia, worth $3 billion, and high-altitude missile defense to the UAE, worth $2 billion. By providing Saudi Arabia and two of its coalition allies, the UAE and Egypt, with so many weapons with which they can use to continue to commit humanitarian crimes in the Yemeni civil war and starve innocent civilians, the U.S. has become incredibly culpable in what has amounted severe war crimes. It is incongruous from a foreign policy standpoint for the U.S. to profess to be a bastion of human rights and democracy while simultaneously fueling Saudi-led coalition efforts to target civilians and force Yemen into a worsening famine. While campaigning, Biden decried the Saudi regime as pariahs, but since taking office, he has reversed course and has actively pursued relations with Saudi Arabia. This inconsistency may seem unconscionable. However, Biden and his administration provided a rationale for their continued support for Saudi Arabia and the UAE, specifically that, as Lee describes, the weapons sold to Saudi Arabia enable it to defend its borders against Houthi cross-border unmanned aerial system and ballistic missile attacks on civilian sites and critical infrastructure, and that the weapons sold to the UAE enable it to promote its national security, goals that align with national security objectives of the U.S. While these may have been the expressed reasons for why the U.S. conducted these arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the actual reasons appear to be much more complicated. Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany illustrate how, strategically, U.S. arms sales have two main purposes, those being to shift the regional balance of power in favor of American interests and to exert leverage over the conduct of the recipient nations. In the case of Saudi Arabia, which has repeatedly utilized its vast oil reserves to compel the U.S. to satisfy Saudi interests, providing Saudi Arabia with sophisticated weapons can be perceived as an effective strategy employed by the U.S. to balance the scales of power between the two countries. 
This balance of power is critical because the U.S. cannot be an effective hegemon if it has no leverage over an influential country like Saudi Arabia. There is also a financial incentive for the U.S. to engage in arms deals. While selling weapons to other countries may be a matter of U.S. foreign policy, revenue from the arms sales directly benefit American companies. U.S. presidents are well aware that arms deals, such as those made with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, create American jobs and corporate profits. This financial incentive was made clear in Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany's article when Trump declared it as a motivation for his arms deal with Saudi Arabia, stating that it, quote, will create hundreds of thousands of jobs, tremendous economic development, and much additional wealth for the United States, end quote. While Trump may have more blatantly broadcasted the financial incentives of arms deals than his predecessors, every president since Bill Clinton has illustrated in foreign policy documents that economic benefits are a critical consideration in the arms sales approval process. While Biden's State Department defended the 2022 arms deals made with Saudi Arabia and the UAE as being negotiated in order to protect the security of those two countries, in actuality, it seems that the rationale that the U.S. government has for engaging in arms sales with Saudi Arabia and the UAE are significantly more multifaceted and oftentimes are motivated by economic incentives. However, engaging in these arms sales as callously as the U.S., has come with considerable risks. Arms sales can create undesirable strategic and humanitarian effects for both the supplying country and the purchasing country. As Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany document, for the supplying country, these undesirable effects may include blowback, dispersion of weapons, and other negative consequences of entanglement. For the purchasing country, these undesirable effects may include heightened arms races, the dispersion of weapons, increased instability, violence, corruption, human rights abuses, and civil conflict. Many of these negative repercussions are already being realized in the Yemeni civil war, especially the dispersion of weapons and increased instability. Nima al-Bahir, Salma Abdalaziz, Mohammed Abu al-Hayat, and Laura Smith-Sparks' CNN article titled Sold to an Ally, Lost to an Enemy informs readers that a variety of terrorist organizations have gained from the influx of U.S. arms to actors in the Yemeni civil war, with the barrier of entry to advanced weaponry now lowered by the laws of supply and demand due to U.S. arms deals being prevalent in the region. The Yemeni civil war has provided militia leaders with ample opportunity to attain military hardware in exchange for supplying additional fighters to the efforts to battle the Houthis. Arms dealers have similarly flourished in an environment in which sophisticated U.S. weaponry is accessible, and Iranian proxies have even obtained American weapons that they can potentially either reverse engineer for native production or exploit for vulnerabilities. Viewed from this perspective, U.S. arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE have inadvertently supported the strategic efforts of Iran, the very actor the U.S. intended to harm with these arms sales. By conducting arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the U.S. has introduced weapons into an unstable Yemen, with no guarantee that these weapons will be used for their intended purpose as expressed by the U.S. In fact, these weapons may be used in ways that harm U.S. interests. However, this risk is not actively considered by U.S. presidents when conducting arms deals 
Despite legislation designed to safeguard against the risks of weapon sales, like the Arms Export Act, as Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany highlight, research shows that risk does not play a meaningful role when the U.S. government conducts arms deals. In fact, instead of exercising caution, the U.S. has increased risky arms deals since 2001. This continued foreign policy practice has rendered the U.S. vulnerable to the negative consequences of conducting arms deals with an oppressive nation. These negative consequences provide a framework for the policy argument proposed, which is that the Biden administration should curtail arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and more generally, the U.S. should curtail all arms deals with oppressive nations. Regarding its role in the Yemeni civil war, Saudi Arabia has manipulated language to spur international support and distract from its gross human rights abuses. As is depicted in Eleanor Byes and Andrew Garward Gower's article in the Journal of Conflict and Security Law titled The Irrelevance of Human Suffering, Humanitarian Intervention in Saudi Arabia's Operation Decisive Storm in Yemen, by framing its military action in Yemen in terms that invoke widely accepted humanitarian norms, Saudi Arabia was able to compel much of the international community to support its intervention in Yemen. Saudi Arabia's repeated reference to the protection of the people of Yemen from Houthi aggression engages the international community in investing themselves into unilateral humanitarian intervention, hearkening back to the justifications made by members of the international community to intervene in Kosovo and Libya. Not only has Saudi Arabia attempted to use humanitarian language to legitimize its intervention into Yemen, but it has also weaponized it as a compulsory political tool to coerce the U.S. into assisting the Saudi-led coalition in its role in the Yemeni civil war. However, contrary to what Saudi Arabia's humanitarian rhetoric surrounding its intervention in Yemen would have American onlookers believe supporting Saudi Arabia in its campaign to quell the Houthi militias does not align with U.S. values of democracy and its commitment to human rights. U.S. arms sales with Saudi Arabia and the UAE do not align with U.S. values of democracy and human rights and instead promote authoritarianism and oppression. Saudi Arabia has long been viewed as an oppressive nation, as early as the 1970s, according to Fowler, Carter identified that the arms exports policies that Ford inherited from Nixon, which gave considerable military support and credence to Saudi Arabia, are, quote, contrary to our long-standing beliefs and principles, end quote. The oppressive tendencies of Saudi Arabia and the UAE can be seen in Yemen, a United Nations UN Human Rights Council report, as detailed in the Congress and the Trump administration spar over U.S. arms sales to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen article, determined that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been involved in human rights violations that may amount to war crimes. Furthermore, as is illuminated in Sarah Leah Whitson's foreign policy article titled Congress Must Halt Biden's Arms Sales to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has used threats and incentives to influence member nations to vote to end the mandate for the UN Security Council's panel of experts on Yemen. This ensured that there would be no further documentation of violations of international law in the Yemeni civil war. 
Selling weapons to a country accused of war crimes does not align with U.S. principles of democracy and human rights, and it legitimizes an oppressive regime that uses bully tactics to deter members of the international community from speaking out against its behavior. By conducting arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the U.S. is complicit in authoritarianism. Additionally, it strengthens and legitimizes these oppressive regimes. U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE can render these two countries more powerful and influential. As is explained by Christensen, in the competitive market of arms deals, a nation will buy weapons from the firm offering the best deal. When firms compete for a single customer, they will often drive down prices to match those offered by their counterparts. By permitting American firms to offer weapons to autocratic regimes, the U.S. increases the competitiveness of the arms trade with these regimes and thereby enables these regimes to acquire weapons at lower prices and higher quantities than they may otherwise have been able to manage. The willingness of the U.S., a supposed bastion of democracy and human rights, to trade with these oppressive regimes encourages other weapon suppliers to do the same. The U.S. has access to more sophisticated forms of weaponry than other weapon suppliers, a reality that can make U.S. arms deals particularly lucrative for a regime like Saudi Arabia. That the U.S. has strengthened and legitimized Saudi Arabia and its major ally, the UAE, has had negative global effects. As Jordan Cohen and Jonathan Allen aptly note in their Cato Institute article titled Not Looking Like Leverage, The False Promises of Arms Sales to Saudi Arabia, by framing Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as a reformer, the U.S. has played a disturbing role in covering up for the Saudi regime's oppressive treatment of women rights activists and Shiite protesters. By continually engaging in arms sales with Saudi Arabia, the U.S. has provided Saudi Arabia with weaponry it can use to continue to starve Yemenis into submission, and in doing so, the U.S. has rejected its own values of democracy and human rights. The U.S. cannot inspire the international community as a shining city on a hill, while simultaneously degrading its own ethical standing to such a degree that it fuels and enables egregious war crimes to be committed against civilian populations. Biden's rationale for the arms deals as supplying only defensive weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE holds little merit. According to Christopher J. Coyne and Abigail R. Hall's Atlantic Economic Journal article titled The Case Against the U.S. Arms Monopoly, regardless of whether the U.S. intended for the weapons sold to Saudi Arabia and the UAE to be used for defensive purposes, these weapons can just as easily be used offensively. U.S. credibility has been damaged by conducting arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The U.S. has a historic pattern of dealing arms to oppressive regimes. Indra de Souza and Paul Midford's startling International Studies Quarterly article titled Enter the Dragon, an empirical analysis of Chinese versus U.S. arms transfers to autocrats and violators of human rights, 1989-2006, reveals that the U.S. deals arms to authoritarian regimes at a higher rate than China, which primarily transfers arms to African democracies and governments that respect human rights. The credibility of the U.S., a supposed defender of democracy, is diminished when China, a rival of the U.S., routinely portrayed by the American media as an enemy of democracy, provides arms to oppressive regimes at a lower rate 
than the U.S. does. Arms deals, like Biden's recent arms deal with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, degrade U.S. credibility as a defender of democracy and increase international perception of American adversaries such as China. Additionally, U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE have not significantly shifted the U.S. power dynamic with Saudi Arabia as the regime continues to subvert norms associated with hegemonic stability theory. As Cohen and Allen posit, this inability to use arms deals to shift the power dynamic in favor of the U.S. represents a failure of U.S. foreign policy because an important strategic purpose of arms deals is to maintain hegemony and execute leverage. That the Saudi-led coalition continues to engage in atrocities in Yemen, even after receiving weapons from the U.S., is evidence of the strategic foreign policy failure. Due to the dispersion of weapons following arms deals, U.S. weapons sold to Saudi Arabia and the UAE have not always remained in the hands of U.S. allies or proxies, according to El-Bahir, Abdalaziz, El-Hayat, and Smith-Spark. This is a cause of humiliation for the U.S. on the world stage, and it threatens U.S. national security. In 2017, a Houthi-run television channel broadcasted a crowd chanting, quote, death to America, end quote, alongside a captured U.S.-made MRAP. U.S. weaponry fueling the military might of its enemies, individuals that may threaten U.S. national security interests, and potentially even endanger American citizens, presents a legitimate risk for both U.S. credibility and security. These individuals, who could do harm to American citizens, do not just consist of the Houthis, however. In 2021 alone, according to Whitson, MBS brazenly detained, disappeared, or banned at least 89 U.S. citizens, permanent residents, visa holders, or their family members. In facilitating arms deals with oppressive regimes, without weighing more heavily national security risks and the plight of American citizens already targeted by the Saudi government, Biden has done a disservice, not only to these American citizens, but to the long-lasting credibility and national security of the U.S. Biden could have used the unique relationship that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia to send a firm message to MBS and his entourage that the U.S. will not tolerate human rights and civil rights offenses against its own citizens in other countries. Instead, the U.S. chose to deal weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, a move that undermines its credibility internationally and devalues its unofficial position as the hegemon of the world. U.S. arms deals increase U.S. culpability in the war zones where these weapons are used. In Yemen, as is illustrated by El-Bahir, Abdalaziz, El-Hayat, and Smith-Spark, the Saudi-led coalition has transferred U.S.-made weapons to fighters linked to Al-Qaeda, hardline Salafi militias, and other factions warring within Yemen in exchange for loyalty. As a result of its arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the U.S. has inadvertently empowered the very terrorists that they sought to combat in Yemen in the first place. Furthermore, when the weapons used to commit atrocities in Yemen are U.S. weapons, it increases U.S. culpability in the violence committed and the subsequent loss of life. This U.S. complicity in the atrocities of the Yemen war is evidenced in a State Department report illuminated by Cohen and Allen that suggests that poor oversight over U.S. weapons directly led to civilian casualties in the Yemeni civil war, 
As is recounted by Abel, the Saudi-led coalition is responsible for many of these civilian casualties, using American bombs to carry out thousands of catastrophic airstrikes in Yemen that have killed nearly 9,000 civilians. The atrocious war crimes being committed by Saudi Arabia and its allies likely would not have even been possible on this cataclysmic of a scale if the U.S. withdrew support from the Saudi-like coalition and curtailed arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Making matters even more problematic for the U.S. is the fact that, as is demonstrated in Cohen and Allen's article, at least 80% of Saudi pilots who execute frequent airstrikes in Yemen received explicit U.S. training. The U.S. engaging in these arms sales with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and providing their coalition with a disturbing degree of additional support has made it extremely culpable in the war crimes that continue to be committed in the Yemeni civil war. However, this does not have to be the case anymore. The U.S. should adopt future foreign policy stances that more heavily weigh the negative implications of its actions when considering strategic gains that may be attained in its arms deals with oppressive countries, specifically Saudi Arabia and the UAE. This would not be a major change in how the U.S. foreign policy establishment currently operates. After all, as is detailed by Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany, the U.S. already currently bans 19 countries from purchasing U.S. weapons, namely autocratic regimes such as Russia, North Korea, Syria, and China. Adding Saudi Arabia and the UAE to this already comprehensive list would be an appropriate step to take to ensure that the U.S. is no longer supporting and strengthening authoritarianism or enabling and escalating violence in Yemen and surrounding regions. Going forward, Risk assessment should play a more prominent role in assessing which arms deals the U.S. approves, as it is deeply disturbing that long-standing U.S. approval of arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE have played a role in incurring civilian casualties in an already unstable and vulnerable region and increased the military capacity of terrorist organizations that seek to harm the U.S. and its civilian population. The assessment of strategic and economic incentives should no longer completely outweigh risk assessment when it comes to U.S. arms sales. There are several models the U.S. could use to execute a more balanced assessment that seriously weighs the risks of weapon sales. The arms sales risk reward matrix, for instance, is one such model that considers risk more heavily, according to Thrall, Cohen, and Dormany. While Biden may believe that ending his arms sales to Saudi Arabia may harm the U.S. economically, that belief would be a rather short-sighted perspective for any American leader to possess. In fact, the low oil prices resulting from the current relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia has had a rather deleterious effect on U.S. fracking industries. As is explained by Gray, while high oil prices deem it more lucrative to pursue tough oil fields, Low oil prices deem it simply not economically feasible to extract from some sources due to projected low profits. Saudi leadership understands that it is cheaper for the U.S. to import oil than to produce it in this current economic landscape, and as such, Saudi Arabia has compounded the sustained fall in oil prices by offering it at different prices to different markets. If ending U.S. arms flows into Saudi Arabia negatively impacts the economic relationship that was built up between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia on the basis of oil, this may not be an entirely negative strategic or economic outcome for the U.S. Perceived conversely, 
Severing the economic relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia may significantly benefit the U.S. fracking industries and ensure that the U.S. becomes much more self-sufficient when it comes to oil production. Besides, for the sake of the environment and the fight against climate change, the U.S. should be making considerable strides to phase out oil as an essential part of American life in general. Fracking should be phased out as well. However, when examined purely from a strategic standpoint, the U.S. producing its own oil is better than importing it from Saudi Arabia. Ultimately, though, the domestic oil production of the U.S. will have to end as well if the U.S. is ever going to entertain the possibility that it could lead the fight against climate change. Ultimately, with the humanitarian catastrophe growing in Yemen, U.S. foreign policy must avoid exacerbating the crisis and weigh more heavily the risks in selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE that may be used to target civilians in Yemen. Biden should not have approved arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE because doing so does not align with American values of democracy, decreases the credibility of the U.S. on the world stage, decreases U.S. national security, and increases U.S. culpability in war zones where the weapons sold in these arms deals are used. In the future, the U.S. should adopt policy decisions that more heavily weigh the negative implications of international transactions when considering the strategic gains that may be attained from the prospective arms deals with oppressive regimes, as well as simply end all future arms sales with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Until then, American citizens may want to count the Patriot missiles being sold by Biden and his administration. Unlike what some political commentators, such as Waters and Gorka, would assert, the Patriot missile arms sales to Ukraine in 2022 are the least problematic in concerning arms sales to happen that year. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you'll find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.